Hey, everybody, coming up on the Matt Townsend Show, we're talking about depression. And you know what the worst part about depression may be? It may be that someone you love and care about may be suffering, and there's a good chance that you wouldn't know. In fact, they might not even know. Symptoms to look for, tips to help, up next on the Matt Townsend Show. Good afternoon. I'm Sam McCall for Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. A request by Ohio Republicans to shorten the early voting period has been blocked by the Supreme Court. The plan was to stop early voting on November 2nd, but the Obama campaign, the Democratic National Committee, and the Ohio Democratic Party all sued to allow early voting to continue all the way up to the eve of the official election day. The Dems are so keen on making sure early voting is allowed because it is thought that more people with low incomes who work odd hours tend to vote Democrat and will be more likely to have time to vote during the early period. Ohio is one of the election's key swing states that could be very important in deciding the outcome of the race. The Obama campaign is promising a much more energized and visionary performance from the sitting president at tonight's debate rematch. Two weeks ago, when Mitt Romney dominated the first exchange between the two candidates, poll numbers started to cut the president's lead. An energized Romney campaign has been trying to continue the momentum all the way to Election Day. A senior Obama campaign advisor says the president will be focused on not just the success of the last four years, but also his plan for the next term. Both candidates will have to deal with the town hall format that generally forces candidates to abandon attacking their opponent and instead try to connect with voters. Secretary of State Hillary Rodham Clinton took responsibility for the September 11th attack on the Benghazi Libya embassy yesterday. The blame for the attack has been a hot topic on the campaign trail as Republicans have been trying to point out inconsistencies between White House and State Department reports. Clinton says the president and vice president would not have been informed on the specifics of security decisions and that the State Department decision ultimately rests on her shoulders. Initial reports claimed that the attack, which killed four Americans, was sparked by protesters over an anti-Islam video. But now officials understand that this was a coordinated attack planned for the 9-11 anniversary. Works by Picasso, Monet, and Matisse were stolen from a Rotterdam museum early this morning. Police say the thieves carried out the robbery at about 3 a.m., but they are still reviewing security tapes to try and understand how the theft was pulled off. A spokesperson from the Art Loss Register says that the pieces that were taken would be worth hundreds of millions of euros at a legitimate auction, but on the black market will bring significantly less. You're listening to BYU Radio on Sirius XM 143. I'm Sam McCall. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. I'm your host, Matt Townsend, your guide on the side, your life coach, doing what we can every day on this show to help you and your loved ones grow healthier, happier lives. Welcome to the program. Today, we are going to give you a leg up when it comes to depression. You feeling a little bit down? Do you know the signs, the symptoms of what really would be um, technically, clinically called depression? We're going to be talking to an expert about uh, how to, you know, how to 
sort through that, how to figure that out. We're also going to get in and talk a little bit about the power of music in therapy and how that can become a very healing, powerful tool for us. But before we do that, I like to bring the gang of misfits on. Uh, that's our technical <laughs> term right now while we are trying to figure out another name for this great group of people. And we do the news of the day. This is all just the different topics that we we talk about, the good, the bad, the ugly of the human race. And uh, it's just fun. What's going on? What's uniquely fun that makes us human? And why are we lucky to even be still alive? That's well, what we're talking about. Matt, you must have one, Madison. You're chomping at the bit. <laughs> well, speaking of the ugly... Um, So apparently last Wednesday, this huge eyeball washed ashore on Florida's coast. Just huge, massive. When you see the picture, it's like this person has their two hands cupped and it fits inside of their hands. Like it is huge. That's a big eyeball. It's like a huge eyeball. And so they were. Right now, there is one really big dude that looks so wrong with one eye. (laughs) <laughs> he's just walking around. He's like, have you seen my eyeball? It's Cyclops. He's going to be in big trouble. Then he's really looking yeah. silly. <laughs> so if you see somebody out there walking around with an eyeball missing, hello. Well, I mean, I I can see the Cyclops thing. Cyclops work in the bottom of the ocean, right, for Poseidon. So. And it floated in, it floated yeah. in on some beach. Mm-hmm. So some kid's playing, Mommy, look. <laughs> and he's got an eyeball. Massive eyeball. So they were thinking, like, okay, is it a whale? Is it a squid? Turns out it is a swordfish eyeball. What? And it is massive. I. It is so crazy. That is pretty big. And so I was like, okay, like, when By you look. By the way, I love swordfish. It's good. So yummy. I've never tasted the eyeball, but <laughs> swordfish eyeball. How do they know? Um, they said that, I don't know, it's just like they analyze the eye based on color, size, structure, mm-hmm. presence of bone. Anyways, they say that it's a swordfish. They just have to um, do a genetic test, but they believe that's it. Man. And so that was a big swordfish. Yeah, but wouldn't you know, you're actually not supposed to eat swordfish if you're pregnant because it can affect your child or if you're wanting to get pregnant. Really? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, eyeball problems. <laughs> True. <laughs> that is amazing. Um, yeah. This is, huge. again, so parents out there, please don't let your kids play with round things they find on the beach. Now, speaking <laughs> of one eyeball, how about millions of eyeballs? Ooh, what are we Maybe talking not millions, about? but thousands. People watching the uh, space shuttle. Yes. On its way to its new home. How fast did the space shuttle go when it was flying around space? How fast? Space? Ten, uh, thousands of miles, a thousand miles an hour. 17,000 miles an hour. Wow. That's fast. Really fast. So, even to, I mean, you think about if the space shuttle had an odometer, how yeah. many millions of miles are on there. But its most challenging journey of all <laughs> is the 12 miles it had to go from where it landed in Southern California to its. New home in LA in a museum. <laughs> Where do you park a uh, space shuttle? Two in miles LA. an hour. I mean, they're they're actually going to, from what I'm hearing, they're going to park it not on its belly. I guess it to get it through the city. Obviously, you're not going to ship it around right. straight up yeah. like you'd see at the like launch pad. You know? but, but when it gets to the museum, they're going to prop it up right. Huh. But cool. uh, yeah, really? they sh- they that's really cool to see. It, it seems it, like you'd want to get on and walk around and. Well, hey, they could have like a little elevator that like lifts you up to like how it is on the launch pad. Like they I don't know, like lift if, them up and I'd want to get in that thing. It would be cool to go in. That's how it is on the Incredibles. So I could. Be... <laughs> yeah, you watch too many cartoons. <laughs> Two miles an hour, one hundred and sixty wheels on the little trailer to uh, uh, tow it around. It's massive. Uh, what do you think it costs 
to move a space okay. shuttle across L.A. Permits, gasoline, uh, trucks. Okay, I'm going to go with $20 million. That's actually too high. Really? Chop it in mm-hmm. half. $10 million. $10 million huh. bucks. Which is still a good chunk of change, but I guess what uh, NASA did is said, well, we've got these space shuttles, and you can put it in your museum if you want to pay to... Get it, get there. it there. So that's what it costs to. Well, that's not bad. That's a cool I mean, idea. What you buy you, twenty million bucks? You got a space shuttle? Yeah. Well, I do that. Not sure. Oh, yeah. did, did that count, I'm not sure if that counts the flight or not. Well, then you charge tickets. But uh, <laughs> you one part up in the space. The uh, they were bringing it because they kind of snaked it through L.A. So a lot of tourists could yeah. see it. You know, the dodging trees, power lines, and tourists. <laughs> They pulled it across the Manchester Boulevard Bridge, and they th- and I guess Toyota wanted a piece of this action. So they paid a chunk of money to hook up one of their pickup trucks to, to the dolly. And somehow, I guess they managed to pull it a little bit. Holy and God. so they taped oh it. So that will probably a com- be a commercial we'll see down yeah, the road as a Toyota pickup towing space show. You know what? Show. Only in America. <laughs> that is great. We paid billions of dollars for it. We sell it for ten dollars, ten cent, no, ten, $10 cents million. on the dollar, oh. or not even that. We sell it for give it away. Well, that's pretty good. When last time you junked a car, Matt, did you get ten cents on the dollar? I've actually for never it? junked a car. Oh, my cars junked me. <laughs> um, I, I I always just total them. Oh, okay. Mm. Yeah, the insurance One company of takes it away. You know, that's how it is. Hey, yeah, did you guys... imagine some, some astronaut, it's safe on the landing pad, but he knows it's the last flight. So he's like, oh, I'm going to take this thing out, runs over a fence, kind of dents it all up. <laughs> okay, here's one for you. Here's a song. Uh, here's a song, a story about singing. Did you guys know that mice can sing? Really? In tune with each other. True, true that. New Orleans, uh, out of New Orleans, scientists at Tulane University recently discovered that mice can match the pitch of their voices. Are you squeaking like a mouse? Can match the pitch of their voices to blend with one another. The findings came as something of a surprise to the researchers since mice were thought to be incapable of being able to change the pitch of their voices. We are claiming that mice have limited versions of the brain and behavior traits for vocal learning that are found in humans for learning speech and in birds for learning song. Huh. Interesting. So now... Three... Blind mice. Three. <laughs> They've always been singing. Hello, Mouseketeers. <laughs> They've been singing for years. Singing more Cinderella. Those guys can really. Those sing. guys oh, can yeah. sing. Oh, yeah. See, I don't see why. This is why science is just so bad. They're so slow. This has already yeah. been validated <laughs> on many fronts. In Cinderella. Forties cartoon. Uh, Annette Funicello and the Mouseketeers. They've been singing for years. We don't need science. We've got well, TV. We've, we've got it covered. <laughs> and the internet. I still like science. Sure you do. <laughs> so if you want more obvious science news, uh, some researchers just found out that, hey, kids perform better in school and they're better behaved when they have more sleep. What? <laughs> You're kidding. You're what? Yeah. So anyone who's had kids knows this. But, sleep? But what they did find was, so here, here's why it's worth talking about. They found that just 27 minutes more sleep will result in this. Is that all you... That's why I only needed about a 20-minute nap. Right? Boom. I'm so back. It's it's my 3.30 power nap in the middle of the show. I, yeah. think I just, I just lay is, on the floor here. Yeah, but you know, that's awkward for the rest of us. You, you know, know what? Just it's. I don't know how in-depth the research was either because I do wonder if they went and they graphed on the – imagine a chart and on the uh, x-axis they put the number of hours of sleep and on the y-axis – 
how rowdy the kid is. And it's kind of graphs a little bell curve because if you get on the one end, 10, 11, 12 hours of sleep, great. Kid's well rested. He's in great mood. Go on the other end, two or three hours. No problems at school because the kid just takes a nap right there on the desk. Put just quiet till the end of the period. Twenty-seven problem minutes. solves itself. But uh-huh. the twenty-seven minutes is a big deal. I mean, that's like a that's a very specific number. It, it was. I mean, it was. You know. Yeah. It was kind of an average. It's sh- what we call science. But it was twenty-seven minutes. It's interesting. It's really not a whole lot of time. You'd think it was an hour and a half, which is an yeah. actual sleep cycle time right. frame. But and 27 so, minutes 27 more. Minutes. So parents out there, are you giving your kids an extra 27 minutes of sleep? If well, you would, is change it, the world. Is it just like from what you normally do? Is it just like 27 minutes more than what? That's kind of it's, what I'm thinking. It's more like... Yeah, don't ask questions. Well, <laughs> it, it's the ones who get 53 minutes less than their normal had like... They had marked decrease in behavior and academic performance. Oh. But the ones who were about 27 over didn't get – they were doing okay. I didn't know like there was an optimal amount. So maybe like on a test day you let them sleep in for a little bit? Well, but what, if you, like what if you push them too far and then you lower the test scores? See, now I'm going to be neurotic. <laughs> too much, too little, too much, too little. Little Jimmy normally gets five and a half hours of sleep, so he'll get five hours and 57 minutes. See, I know. If they're falling day. asleep, if they're falling asleep like at night during American Idol or whatever's on – then you know it's you got to give them more sleep. Forget schoolwork, American Idol. It's that's you know puts me to sleep. <laughs> oh, sorry, okay, did I say that out time? loud? Oh, we got fifteen more minutes, and you've got to have your nappy nap. <laughs> well, that's interesting science, kids. Uh, good stuff. Way to bring it. Way to bring it. You guys were bringing it like this was the last show of the week. Appreciate that because that you guys rocked it. Okay. Uh, anyway, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we are going to we're going to actually revisit an interview that was done this morning on our morning show about music therapy and how it might be the best therapy you can have out there. You're listening to the Matt Townsend Show right here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. NASA is testing a new cool technology that will change the way we explore other worlds. This is Innovation Now, bringing you stories behind the ideas that shape our future. A giant cone of inner tubes stacked together may someday help cargo or even people land on Mars or other planetary destinations or return to Earth. NASA, which is developing the innovative spacecraft technology, calls it HIAD, Hypersonic Inflatable Aerodynamic Decelerator. A HIAD could allow NASA to send more scientific instruments to distant worlds because it weighs less and can expand from being packed inside a rocket to accommodate larger payloads that can land at higher altitudes. First, engineers need to conquer the challenges of designing a flexible heat shield that can survive the high speed and heat of entry into another atmosphere. That's why the HIAD project is testing high-tech materials and designs in laboratories here on the ground and in flight to demonstrate that an inflatable spacecraft is a real possibility in changing the way we explore other worlds. One of these flight tests, the latest inflatable reentry vehicle experiment, known as IRV-3, is launching this spring from NASA Wallops Flight Facility on Virginia's eastern shore. For the latest on that mission, check out nasa.gov forward slash HIAD. HIAD, it's changing the way we explore other worlds. For Innovation Now, this is Buddy Rubino. 
Innovation Now is produced by the National Institute of Aerospace through collaboration with NASA and is distributed by WHRV. Get your business in the game and sponsor Cougar Sports on BYU Radio and BYU TV. For more information, call 801-422-1448 or email corporate support at byu.edu. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Today, we're going to jump into uh, a little bit of the mental health arena and kind of uh, we want to discover the keys to mental health. Okay, One of the tools or one of the ideas we're going to get into is depression. We're going to be bringing on an expert who can help us with that and uh, and try to understand how best to approach mental health, how best to approach the topic of depression, how to know when you've really got it, and what to do if that is something that you're dealing with. Before we go to our uh, therapist, Melissa Lampson, to help us with that, we are going to first revisit an interview that took place earlier today on The Morning Show with Marcus Smith. Uh, And Marcus uh, interviewed a man named Robert Gupta, who's a violinist who joined the L.A. Philharmonic at age 19. This, uh, this man also studied pre-med, and he had an idea of how to use classical music and orchestras to help people heal. So let's now join Marcus Smith from The Morning Show talking to Robert Gupta. There's a project that we recently started called, called Street Symphony, which has been fascinating at, you know, at one level to sort of think of the musicians of this ensemble to bringing music into the, some of the most very darkest, neglected places of our society, you know, often places surrounded by issues of, of mental health and neurodegenerative disease, um, and to see um, the power of music firsthand in lighting up individuals suffering from very deep depression or from post-traumatic stress disorder in the case of when we often play for veterans. Um, But sort of at a different level, um, the music creates even deeper connections than the neurology and the neurobiology alone. I feel that it's able for us, you know, allows us to see a sort of window into the soul, into the humanity of um, some of the individuals that we share time with. Do you like the term music therapy? You know, it's it's <laughs> it's beginning to grow on me. There there are aspects of of music therapy um, that are tremendously effective. Uh, when I was um, I was holding a research position, research assistant position at Harvard, um, uh, I think in about two thousand five or six, and I was I visited the lab of a man named Gottfried Schlauch, who is now one of the preeminent music therapists in the in the country, and he was actually an organist at the Vienna Conservatory, and he's come up with a therapy called melodic intonation therapy, which was actually really instrumental in the treatment of uh, Congresswoman Gabrielle Giffords and her recovery from um, her massive brain injury. And so music therapy has taken a sort of central role um, in in neuroscience because it's such a mystery still as to how exactly it works. Um, But music therapy is a sort of dissociative process in taking apart elements of music making and musical elements themselves and sort of packaging them um, into uh, into what could be beneficial. But I think that the wider scope of a larger piece of music is as beneficial because it allows us to breathe and appreciate the larger craftsmanship of a work and not just the individual elements. Do you feel any tension? And the reason I'm asking you this is because I, you know, just sort of philosophically, there are purists who feel like music 
should exist for its own sake. And then there are those who might say, well, if, if you're going to appropriate music as a tool for some other purpose, that that's somehow less noble, that's less aesthetically appealing. Do you, do you have any thoughts on that? Because uh, fundamentally, I mean, I, I, I really don't have any problem with it. I'm just kind of, how, how do you, you know, tear that apart and figure that out? You know, it's, it's a shift that's beginning to occur in, in my thinking. I think in the thinking of a lot of musicians that are currently members of, of great orchestras, because we see sh- such a shift occurring in the world when we think of music um, only for the sake of music, and I, I wonder if that sort of thinking is sustainable anymore, honestly. Um, we see orchestras like the Atlanta Symphony and the Minnesota Orchestra and St. Paul Chamber Orchestra um, really suffering to put on music for the sake of, of great music. And so often when we do that, the concert hall becomes an ivory tower. Um, the music we make becomes, becomes inaccessible. And that was never the point um, of, of, the, of composers like Beethoven. If you, you know, know, the, know the, the, the sort of the Schiller words behind Beethoven's Night Symphony, that's, that was never the point. Um, but on the other hand, sort of making sound bites out of great classical music is, again, is dissociative. So I think we can find a balance. But as you said in your introduction, um, there is sort of compartmentalizing music, I feel, is not letting music speak in its most broad and most human term. That this is human craft, and it is not something that we can that we put on the pedestal. We should we should enjoy it. We should delight in it, and we should really strive to understand it. Can you describe for us what your actual activity is in terms of taking music to people who have a neurodegenerative condition, be it uh, PTSD uh, uh, or uh, maybe schizophrenia or whatever it may be? Where you know where do your tires hit the asphalt, and what kind of work are you actually doing from day to day in, in this? So what we what we do is you know we sort of um, come up with an ensemble of four to six musicians and put together a program. The same sort of caliber program that we would present at Disney Hall, let's say if it was uh, a quintet by Brahms or a late Beethoven string quartet or a quintet by Bartok, and we seriously work. And then as we start putting the program together, I've already reached out to a number of venues that we've developed partnerships with, namely the Department of Mental Health, um, the Skid Row Clinic on Maple Avenue in downtown Los Angeles, which is at the very heart of Skid Row or the Midnight Mission, which is one of the largest Skid Row homeless organizations. Um, you know, as you know, Skid Row is home to over 50,000 homeless individuals, and uh, two-thirds of them are mentally ill. Um, many of them are severely disabled, and many of them are veterans. Uh, and so we reach uh, a wide range of, of individuals, and we're usually performing between two to three performances a month. Uh, just this summer alone, Street Symphony performed 15 events, at five different Los Angeles County jails, most of them at the Twin Towers facility in right in the middle of downtown L.A. Um, so we're literally uh, going into places that we wouldn't have access to. And I feel that, you know, it's, it's important for us as musicians um, at one level because the music opens the door uh, to these places that I feel as citizens we have a responsibility to see, to witness. It doesn't matter, you know, what our opinion is of, what these places are and who's there and what happens in these places, but I feel that we have a responsibility to witness it. And so it's become a kind of very interesting um, journey in sort of uh, in civil discourse, if you will, you know, and just sort of just bearing, bearing witness to 
what happens in our in our country. Uh, there was a, there was a Robert before you many years ago. You probably heard of his name, Robert Schumann. And there's a famous <laughs> quote. He he wrote an awful lot about music. And one of the things he said that well, here's a direct quote: "To send light into the darkness of men's hearts, such is the duty of the artist." Uh, I from from the story you just told and, and putting it together with this Schumann quote, uh, you have no question or reservations about the potential for really deep efficacy of 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 healing people's hearts or per- perhaps even medically having uh, benefits for people. Mm-hmm. You hit the nail on the head. Yeah, you know, that's one, that's one of my one of my favorite 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 quotes. And there's just something worth mentioning about Schumann is that he himself suffered from schizophrenia, and he died in a mental asylum. Um, you know, at, at one level, I, we know that music has a profound effect on every single one of us. And, and that effect is deeply individual. You know, we have our, you know, there's probably nothing more individual than our taste in music. But there's also nothing more deeply communal when we sit together in a room and enjoy music together. And I think that science is only beginning to figure out the ways that music helps the brain um, you know, we're, we're finding studies on how music can regulate the dopamine response within the brain so that the tremor of individuals who suffer from Parkinson's disease and their gait steadies when you listen to music. Or Alzheimer's patients can sit down at a piano and play a tune by Chopin that they learned when they were little kids, and at that point in their dementia, they can no longer remember the names of their family. But I feel that there's even a deeper role than the neuroscience, and I feel that it sort of emerges sometimes during our street symphony events is that music becomes a conduit for human service. Because so often these individuals who live in these most dehumanizing conditions forget what it's like to experience something beautiful. To experience beauty itself, to even remember that they have the capacity to experience beauty. And this is a deep tragedy of humanity, period. Um, and when we remind individuals that we share that beauty, and that we can hold each other in a space of openness and sometimes vulnerability, that in and of itself, I believe, is truly deeply healing. I know that sometimes I get the sense that music therapy and its benefits can be overstated for my my personal view, where sometimes people are, are characterizing it as this cure-all, this elixir that's going to you know just do more than I think it really can. And I'm wondering if you've come up against that kind of a point of view, any pushback against the, the, the you know the, this cure-all concept. Well, you know, I, I actually haven't I haven't heard that perspective as, as much, and I'm sure it exists. Uh, because uh, it, it's, it's sort of out there. It's so easily that we can create a sort of sink oil thing. You know, you hear about ridiculous things like um, people creating uh, chairs that are built out of speakers and you lie down on them and the vibration of the sound heals your body, that, that sort of thing. Well, I want um, one of those for sure. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, I, I think that what we can follow with a lot of faith is truly great science. And there's a lot of great, great science occurring around this very compelling and very interesting subject. You know, there's a, a recent book by Dr. Oliver Sacks called Musicophilia, which has become deeply popular, um, or Dan Levitin's book, This Is Your Brain on Music, uh, constant, you know, monthly, if not weekly, publications in science journals like Nature Neuroscience and Science um, about the power of, of arts and music on the brain. And so we're, we're beginning to put together these elements, and I feel there's a danger in going too fast and fast-forwarding and, and, and trying to overstep what 
what may truly be happening, but there definitely is something happening, and and there's a lot of great science surrounding it. So I think that we'll get there. Um, I would love to talk a little bit about Nathaniel, um, who had you know has had continually a deep effect on my identity and my voice as a musician. His story has now become such um, become such a beacon for homelessness and mental health advocacy throughout the United States. But I'm very proud to be his friend um, and to to sort of to learn from him and even sometimes to to help him through um, uh, playing the violin itself. We we met because um, Steve Lopez, the LA Times columnist, who wrote, uh, initially wrote columns about Nathaniel, which became the subject um, of his book, The Soloist. Um, Steve was writing a column about me when I joined the orchestra, and um, I had been reading about Nathaniel. He was already sort of this hero. Um, many of the orchestra members knew him. He was coming to rehearsals and concerts, and so we met at a bowling alley um, celebrating Nathaniel's 57th birthday, uh, which Steve had invited me to. But actually, it wasn't Nathaniel's birthday. It was Beethoven's birthday, because Nathaniel would so much rather celebrate Beethoven's birthday than his own. And there's a sort of beautiful word salad that occurs when you, whenever you talk to uh, Nathaniel, and it's actually a symptom of his very serious affliction with paranoid schizophrenia. Um, and, and Nathaniel and I immediately connected, and uh, he started asking questions about um, a really treacherous passage in a Beethoven symphony. And I had my fiddle with me, so I just pulled it out, and I played for him right there in the bowling alley. And a couple of days later, Steve wrote to me saying that Nathaniel was interested in a violin lesson with him. And I had no idea what to expect. I had never even heard Nathaniel play, and I, I sort of knew that if I started him like I would start a student on scales and arpeggios, he would just get bored and it might just it might not end well. Um, so I brought several pieces of music, and sure enough, when we started this first lesson, Nathaniel was very deeply agitated. Um, and uh, you know, when he was treated in the 70s at Bellevue was with shock therapy and thorazine, and so Nathaniel still refuses medication. And this was the first time ever in my life that I truly saw the manifestation of very serious mental illness occur right in front of me. And Nathaniel um, started having a manic episode, which was triggered by, by several things, possibly some memories of um, the, the music itself. And you know, he was this incredibly talented, gifted individual holding a violin and completely delusional, manic, crazed, psychotic. And I was, I was terrified. And um, it was the sort of thing where you, you look back and you don't quite know how, what, what exactly happened, but I just started playing. And I sort of had an idea, I think, in the back of my head that if I could get Nathaniel playing again, that he would be able to calm down. And slowly, slowly, slowly this started to happen. And I kind of went through the opening couple minutes of a bunch of concertos that I knew that I had learned. And I got to one, the Sibelius concerto, and playing the beautiful opening of it, and I hadn't even looked up at Nathaniel during this time. And then I see him pick up his own violin and start playing at pitch with one finger, never really having studied um, the violin at a conservatory. I mean, obviously, he was a very gifted double bassist at Juilliard. Um, but it was this sort of miracle that happened again and again whenever I sort of worked with Nathaniel. I told him that wherever he had his violin and wherever I had mine, I would play a lesson with him. And so we started at Disney Hall at that lesson, and then uh, eventually worked our way down to just Skid Row. And I was so outraged that Nathaniel could have ever been homeless on Skid Row, and that someone as talented and gifted as him could have ever been there, but that, you know, he was going to be fine. 
he had a book and a movie made about him. He was no longer homeless. But what if there was even one more person like him out there? And there are. There are so many thousands like Nathaniel out there, um, so many that are um, currently incarcerated at places like the Patton State Hospital or Twin Towers downtown. Um, and so I wanted to, to see them. Uh, I think listening actively, um, listening, you know, while searching for um, the craft of how the music is put together, listening for the melody itself, listening to a piece several times, focusing on various different elements within that piece, especially if you're listening to amazingly crafted works by Brahms or Beethoven or Mozart or Schubert. Um, this can lead to a lot of pleasure, because the more we know about the, um, the piece, the more we know about the composer and their perspective and their life and their style, I think the more we enjoy, the more significance we find this music sort of starts to pop out in 3D. Love it. That, uh, again, was a little soundbite from our morning show. And uh, as we think about it, music can make a huge difference in our lives. It can heal. It can heal people. It can take them to the next level. This, by the way, as we go out to break, my favorite song makes me happy, makes my toe tap. Uh, When we come back, we're going to be bringing on Melissa Lampson, our therapist extraordinaire, and she's going to help us figure out how to unlatch depression and move on in our lives. You're listening to The Matt Townsend Show right here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Are there some global issues you wish you could know more about or could get an inside perspective on? Notes from the Kennedy Center presents lectures and seminars from international diplomats and scholars discussing issues and events from all over the world. Become a more informed global citizen and tune into Notes from the Kennedy Center weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Good afternoon, I'm Sam McCall for Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Taliban leaders say their attack on a 14-year-old Pakistani girl was justified because she spoke out against Islamic law. The statement also accused the recovering victim of idealizing President Barack Obama, but said that she was not targeted for supporting the education of women. Pakistani doctors removed a bullet from her head, and she has since been moved to a British military hospital for further care. Her doctors say she has every chance for a full recovery, but that the healing and rehabilitation process will take months. Local political leaders have been hesitant to condemn the Taliban directly for the attack, which some critics say shows a lack of resolve against extremism. With the outbreak of deadly meningitis, now with the death toll of 15 and the number of infected over 200, experts say the end is nowhere in sight. Officials are widening their investigation of the company that produced the tainted drug linked to the outbreak to see if other medications produced there could be causing infections as well. The FDA said Monday they are looking specifically into two other drugs produced by the New England-based pharmaceutical compacting company, The number of cases of fungal meningitis rose by nine yesterday, according to data from the Centers for Disease Control. 
divided Syrian rebels have now agreed to combine under a joint leadership and to help aid them in their battle to remove regime president Bashir Assad from power. Vicious fighting continued in many cities throughout the war-torn country today as the 19-month-old conflict continues. Foreign supporters of the rebel cause have been urging them to unite under one leading body so that outside backers can have a credible body to support. Some opposition leaders, leaders say they hope the move will allow foreign governments to feel better about possibly supplying them with weapons to help fight Assad's army. So far, the conflict, so far in the conflict, more than 30,000 people have been killed. Social Security retirement benefits will be rising by 1.7 percent for over 60 million Americans next year. The small increase may not cover the rising premiums elderly Medicare beneficiaries will be facing. Benefit increases are calculated annually based on consumer inflation rates from the third quarter. The average benefit will now be $1,261 a month, but officials from AARP warn that most of the increase will be used up by ever-rising Medicare costs. Reforms to, the, reforms to Social Security have been at the heart of some national budget concerns, but so far no plans to change the program have made headway on Capitol Hill. You're listening to BYU Radio on Sirius XM 143. I'm Sam McCall. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. Today, we are talking about depression and uh, how to recognize the signs, the symptoms to look for. We're bringing on our our expert social worker, licensed clinical social worker, LCSW, Melissa Lampson. Uh, she received her master's degree from the University of Utah. She's been in social work for over 10 years and uh, works and actually owns NewLeafCounselingUtah.com. Melissa's a good old friend. Not old. I shouldn't say that as I look you right in the eye. You're not that old. A good young friend, but she's been on the show before and just knows how to say it. So we'll listen. Is this depression a big deal? Uh, I would say so. Do you see it out there? I mean, it's. I know a lot of people feel it. And it seems like, in fact, I've had a lot of clients that don't get it, and they just mm-hmm. kind of tell their wife to just, you know, suck it up. You right. know, life's hard. Get over it. <laughs> we all have a hard day. Yeah. So there are some interesting attitudes out there about depression, and maybe it's a choice. A lot of people believe um, it's something that isn't really logical. Um, and a lot of people say, you know, if you could change your diet, it go, it'll go away. Yeah, if you'd lose weight, just exercise. you'd be less depressed. Yeah. So a lot of people think they're these really easy solutions. And, you know, I wanted to talk a little bit about the difference between situational depression yeah. versus clinical Let's depression. Let's get into that. Because so people feel depression. They might say, oh, I'm depressed. What's the difference between situational and actual clinical? Okay. So... To start off, I want to talk about a couple of statistics. So, depression is a very common experience that we can all that we can all have some point in our life. Um, and on the National Institute of Mental Health, it states that approximately 20.9 million American adults, or 9.5 percent of the U.S. population, 18 and older, have a mood disorder. Roughly 10 percent of the adult population have some mood disorder. 
Mood disorder would be bipolar disorder, dysthymia, major depressive disorder. I don't want to get too clinical, yeah. but that's you know significant okay. depression. Yeah. So, you know, it's a pretty high statistic, that's and a I very think that was statistic. done in about two thousand six. Okay. Um, and then you have then you have situational depression, where um, anywhere from like twenty five to twenty seven percent will experience situational depression, mm-hmm. like um, with the death of their mother. Right. Death of a mother, maybe a divorce, Mm -hmm. loss of a baby. Failing school. Yeah, failing school, moving away from family and home, Mm -hmm. losing a job. Uh, When the donut shop closed up and had to move. Right. Depending on who you are, that might be really depression. That would kill me. (laughs) (laughs) What do you do when the donut shop's gone? But see, that's kind of more just in, it's in the context of this situation. This doesn't mean you have a chemical problem. This doesn't mean, you know, you're going to be taking meds the rest of your life. Yeah. And so so to talk about this 10% statistic or 9.5% and then the 25% statistic, mm. we we all can relate, you know, whether it's yeah. a depressing day or it's something that we've been experiencing for quite a long time. Um, so clinical is more of that chemical imbalance, um, something that, you know, it oftentimes life looks great. Yeah. And you feel horrible and isolated, and you can't get out of it. And it's it's that is the funk. Yeah, but it's not um, it's not even situational. Your life could be great. You could have just got a promotion. You're now you know going to learn a new whatever, and all of a sudden you're still in a funk. Yeah, and still unhappy. Yeah, and so that you know that's the really hard thing when you can't identify and say, "Wow, yeah, I'm grieving. I just lost my spouse." Or I'm unemployed. Okay. When you can't pinpoint it, yeah. it's extremely frustrating because how in the world do you solve something that's not that you don't know exist. what the reason is? Yeah, there's no catalyst for it. Mm-hmm. Is it because uh, this is interesting? Um, or even like having a baby. A lot of uh, so postpartum postpartum depression. depression. It's not. Would you consider that clinical depression? I mean, it's chemical. It's their body isn't in the right frame. Right. But it's not situational, is it? I mean, it's really caused um, by something other than just context. Yeah. So it depends because obviously when a woman has a baby, hormones and chemicals, they're all changing, oh, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, so there's a normal level. They call it the baby blues. Um, first six weeks after yeah. having a baby. Scary. Yeah. That, I <laughs> In mean, a good it's, way, of course. Yeah. Just um, pretty emotional, might be really up and down, have feelings of loss. But then once it goes past that and a woman has a hard time connecting to her baby and is thinking, what have I done? And they feel tremendous mm. guilt over not feeling that connection. Why do I not love. feel this love? And, yeah. yeah. That's a real condition. And that one, um, that affects a lot of women. Yeah. Um, here in Utah, they said anywhere up to 30% will report symptoms of postpartum of, depression. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's a, yeah, and that's, a lot of that's just natural, right? It's just your right. chemicals rebalancing. It's you trying to deal with the fact that you're recovering and you have a new baby and you might have other kids. Right. Overwhelm. So, yeah, but if it falls in that category of it's not going away mm-hmm. and you're not feeling better as time passes on and you're still having a hard time connect to your baby and you're feeling extreme guilt yeah. and worry, you know, it's it's good to talk to a professional because it can become more chronic. Oh, yeah. But obviously situations can, you know, be the event that, you know, gets it going and and then it can prolong itself. Well, and it seems like in, in life, if you live long enough, you're going to have a situational context to get depressed over. Mm-hmm. It's going to be something, right? Right. And so I guess you're saying one of the signs that you actually have depression is... If it's starting to 
go long term if it's starting to impact you in a, in a way that's not changing? Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the signs and the symptoms. We'll okay. kind of be more specific. So with chemical or clinical depression, like I said, that's when you have a hard time functioning. It's extremely hard to get out of bed. Uh, work is, you know, almost kills you. Uh-huh. Um, you find yourself feeling really emotional or isolated. Nothing appeals to you. You start to maybe get body aches and pains, appetite changes. You and, gain and or these lose are, weight. And these are with no real reason for any of this. Yeah. Short of just all of a sudden it's every day. Well, yeah. So you can you can meet criteria with situational depression, but this chemical depression yeah. just starts. It kind of lingers. Yeah. It's it the lingers. gift that keeps on giving. Right. So so you have this trouble sleeping, uh-huh. and then a lot of times you'll experience this pain, and it's it's significant. Mm-hmm. Like you can't pull yourself out of it. You can't think yourself out of it. You you literally can't. Yeah. And that, that's a very real condition. And then, so those are some of the symptoms. Um, situational depression, you know, obviously those symptoms can be the same. However, you know, like we said, we have this situation that we can kind of identify. Yeah. Um, but, you know, let's see. Are they hereditary? I mean, is this, her- I guess, situational, situational. But is, is uh, clinical depression... Inherited? Did grandma have it? Did great grandma have it? Is there kind of a family history of this? Oh, yeah. There's a strong genetic component. Yeah. So if you see mom had it and you see grandma had it or dad had it or whatever, know your history. Yeah. Because <laughs> it's an indicator. It is what it is. Yeah, exactly. You, we can pretend like it doesn't exist, but you know what? Apparently it does. So we, we, just, we just start dealing with it from that angle. Yeah. So – I talked with a colleague who, um, you know, shared shared his story, and he struggled with clinical depression. And he talked about being a young adult, and, you know, we talk about this isolation, and a lot of times people can feel really isolated, but they're not necessarily being reclusive. Right. They're really friendly, and they seem really happy, but, you know, on the inside, they might be feeling... They're just lonely and alone and broke, right. yeah. So he talked about this. He was, you know, pretty popular. Yeah. Had a lot of things going for him, but had the clinical depression. There was no reason for him to feel depressed. And people would say, "You have so many things." Oh, interesting. And you it know, almost seems like that's maybe where anxiety kind of becomes the ugly sister. Because maybe you're anxious to do something socially, but you do it, yeah. and when you do it, you perform, and then you then you're depressed, or right. or you're faking it, or you're an actor. Mm-hmm. And it becomes so exhausting to pretend like everything's okay. You want to just... Just not do it. Yeah. And then you don't do it, and now you're depressed because you're not doing it, and you're underachieving. Exactly. <laughs> These are horrible cycles, aren't they? I yeah. mean, this is like a nightmare. Yeah, it's... Gosh, it's hard to it's hard to even articulate, you know, when you're in that state of mind, whether it's yourself or it's a loved one, because a lot of times there's so much guilt and shame, it's hard for people to reach out and... To have perfect strangers say, what can I do to yeah. help? Like, Yeah, no, no. No, you have to have a close relationship, somebody that you trust to confide in. It's a big deal, too, because as I just think of our listeners, maybe somebody driving a truck, somebody you know, picking up their kids or their grandkids, it's, it is, it's kind of the silent suffering thing. There's somebody mm-hmm. listening to this right now that is like, oh, man, that's me. Yeah. That's me. So eventually after we're going to go a little bit longer, then we're going to come back. And after the break, you're going to kind of tell us what we should be doing. But is this is it seems like we just don't get it. 
It seems like kind of society in general. And we get the concept of depression, but it's almost like it's not a valid thing for us. Yeah. So there's this – a lot of people have difficulty reaching out and seeking help because – a lot of us will view it as a character flaw or if I can just think my way out of it. Yeah. You know, this is a weakness type thing. Right. But it, it is real. And and there's evidence that, you know, supports that. Um, one of the things that I wanted to talk about is you're talking about the societal thing is that the U.S. and France, there was a study done by, um, let's see if I remember, World Health Organization that found that we were the most depressed nation. The U.S. And the, the U.S. and France. Woo! Yes! <laughs> U.S.A. Something to be proud of, right? <laughs> Isn't that sad? Oh, that's depressing. Yeah, so... You but know, it's so interesting, France, but we also are so happy and have so much to be happy for, yet are so depressed. Okay, so this is the point I want to make yeah. on how it's relative. Yeah. So, um, you know, they did... They studied a lot of other countries, maybe third world countries, poor countries, and... They were, you know, 11 percent and on average 15 percent of people in high income countries reported having an episode of depression. Uh And then these low income countries, it was lower, 4 percent lower. 4 percent lower in the low income countries. Yeah. Okay, we're going to come back and talk about this. So as you're driving, you be thinking, what would cause that? You know what I think it is? What? Hmm. It's the Internet. Always blame it on the internet. (laughs) It's always the internet. The interweb or it's Dunkin' Donuts. So we're going to explore this when we come back. That's right. When we come back, right here on the Matt Townsend Show on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. future of soap might be magnetic. Stick around to find out more. This is Innovation Now, bringing you stories of revolutionary ideas, emerging technologies, and the people behind the concepts that shape the future. You've seen pictures of soaps and detergents used to clean up oil spill messes on beaches and on animals. But soap itself doesn't belong in these natural situations either, so how do you recall or remove the soap from nature after it's done its job? After many attempts with various chemical and physical methods to control and remove soap from the things it cleans, a team from the University of Bristol thinks they've found a way to make soap magnetic. The magnetic soap has trace elements of iron mixed with bromides and chlorides, which are both common ingredients in mouthwash and fabric softeners. Experiments show the iron-rich soap is strongly attracted by a magnet. In fact, it can be manipulated through a water and oil mixture. This magnetic control of soaps could open up all kinds of possibilities, like a detergent that doesn't get washed away into rivers with each load and can be reused multiple times, or soap you can magnetically steer to its targets to avoid waste. The manufacturer that perfects this technology will surely clean up with it. For Innovation Now, this is Buddy Rubino. Innovation Now is produced by the National Institute of Aerospace through collaboration with NASA and is distributed by WHRV. Visit us online at innovationnow.us. 
What song changed my life? There are a lot of songs that have changed my life. It's a totally brutal question to try and answer. Every musician has that one song that changed their life. Join Tony Award winner Lea Salonga, American Idol finalist Brooke White, and more of your favorite artists as they explore their lives before and after they heard that one song that changed everything. Watch The Song That Changed My Life, Monday nights at 7.30 on BYU-TV. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. We are talking depression, and today, as we've been talking about depression, uh, we wanted to take it a little deeper to a little bit different direction. Our producer, Madison, breaks it down for us and shows us some creative ways to get out of the funk. There are two types of depression, chemical and situational. While not everyone has chemical depression, Everyone in their life has been situationally depressed. Now, this can result from feeling bad after failing a test or if a loved one has passed away. Now, these are completely normal, but I have found that sometimes people have an expectation that they must be happy all of the time. And if they are not, something is obviously wrong with them. I met a girl who was one of these. When I first got to know her, she seemed normal, but I would notice sometimes that she would pop some pills into her mouth. I got a bit worried because I did not know if she was abusing drugs or anything of that nature. When I talked to her about it, she simply explained that she did not like being unhappy. She had told her mom this, and since her mom wanted to make her daughter happy, she told her that she would schedule a doctor's appointment within the week, and when they went to it, that she should lie and over-dramatize her experiences so that she could get some medication to help her. So that next week, they went, she lied to the doctor, she got the pills, and now if she ever feels slightly sad, she pops a pill into her mouth and feels completely at ease with all this. She told me this quite nonchalantly. At this moment, I did not even know how to react. All of these thoughts were swirling in my mind. Aside from how dangerous something like this is, it was dishonest to lie to her doctor, and it has ended up being a gateway drug for her to abuse other prescription drugs such as oxycodone. She does not understand that it is natural to feel a bit depressed at times. No one enjoys being unhappy. It's just something that happens. Also, how are you able to empathize with others if you don't know what they've gone through? It will severely impair your social skills and the ability to relate to others. I was also very frustrated with her mother for not knowing better. And as a result, the girl, who was now only 18, moved into another city, met a guy in a bar the first night she was there, and has been living with him ever since. And she is now addicted to drugs. Truly, if you feel a bit depressed, there are other ways to go about making yourself feel happier rather than just popping a pill. For some, it is exercise. A guy in our office, Josh, says that whenever he feels down, he just goes on a run, and that the endorphins make him feel better. I can relate. I never feel better than after I have completed a swim workout. The exercise is good for you. Now, while some turn to comfort foods, I say that this is a self-defeating behavior because you will end up feeling bad about yourself with the added weight, and it will feel horrible when you try to work it off. Sometimes, just surrounding yourself with positive stimuli is enough. Bryce Tobin, our handy-dandy producer, has this thing with otters. 
I have no idea. He just thinks that they're really, really cute and he just loves them. Can't blame him though. For him, he just says that if you feel down, just look up other videos on YouTube and you will feel so much better. Upon trying this out, it is so true. Watching these little otters stacking cups or holding hands with each other is simply adorable. They seem to act like humans with the movement of their arms, and it just makes you feel all warm and fuzzy inside. But for me, what really does it is watching the live puppy cam on YouTube at Pet Collective TV. I was just introduced to this yesterday by the Bryce man himself. By the way, who knew that he had such a soft spot for baby animals? Pretty much, you can watch a live feed of three different sets of puppies all day, and it is truly adorable to watch these cute little corgis play and move their jubbly little legs as they scurry from place to place and tear these toys apart. For me, it is way better than anything that I can eat, or even by watching a happy movie. They are just so cute. I am so much of a dog person, but if you happen to be more of a cat person like our producer Rob Sanders, I am sure that there is a live kitten cam for you too somewhere out there. Pretty much, whatever you can do to make yourself happy, do it. Don't fall victim to your situational depression, and finding a way to make you happy will turn your whole day around. Okay, welcome back, everybody. We uh, That uh, was Madison Allred. Her take on situational depression, so there's, you can pop pills, you can go to the look at a puppy online, uh, you can you can become a, an otter addict. There's a lot of things you can do. We're going to go to the pro now. Melissa Lamson, a licensed clinical social worker, master's degree from the University of Utah in the field of social work. She uh, has her own practice, and in her practice, she spends hours dealing with people that are actually suffering with depression. And if you want more information about Melissa, you can go to her website, newleafcounselingutah.com. But Melissa, okay. You were just telling us before the break that America and France, the two biggest countries, you know, highest depression depression rates. Yes. What is that about? And maybe it's what we were just listening to. Yeah. So part of the reason is I think the U.S. and, and, you know, I'm not as familiar with why France is so high. Yeah. Um, Well, it's France. They're very negative. (laughs) Yeah. So I hear. But I think it's expectations and what actually makes people happy. Yeah. Obviously, we're a wealthier nation, and I think people's standards of what, you know, they're supposed to be achieving are, you know, maybe higher. Inflated. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely inflated. And that these lower-income countries are, you know, glad yeah. they have food on the table. Yeah. It's a major perception shift, I think. I think you're so right. Yeah. And what we're supposed to have, and we're okay with debt. And do you think it has something to do with how we medicate, too? Oh, absolutely. We just kind of throw medicine, don't we? Yeah, Western medicine. So, you know, let's just talk a little bit about Canada Mm -hmm. and the U.S. And, you know, if you look online, there are countless pharmaceutical companies in Canada that you can look up. And then in the U.S., I mean, there's the standalone. Plus, I mean, you can get medication from anywhere. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. and, And it's we medicate. That's yeah. what we do. That is our standard procedure. And of, some cultures meditate. So we, we medicate and they're all meditating. Right. And interesting, some of those cultures that are so prone to meditate aren't... Lower rates. Lower rates of depression. Yeah. So Korea and Asia were significantly lower yeah. than the U.S. and Canada. And I think, once again, there's some perception, too. We view it as a mental illness. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times they're able to you know, say it's grief, it's sadness, yeah. it's, it's a common factor of life. Yeah. 
And I think sometimes we don't we don't really allow ourselves to cope or emotionally to have that. Yeah. See, okay, we're, when we come back from the break, Melissa, I want you to get in and just start downloading the solutions. What should we be doing? How should we be thinking? If we sense we have depression, what is our protocol? What should we, how should we approach it? Instead of just grabbing meds, let, what else could we be looking for? Okay. We'll be back with Melissa Lampson right here on the Matt Townsend Show on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. KBYU-FM, HD2, Provo. After a tough loss at home to the Oregon State Beavers, in which nothing went the Cougars' way. Deflected and caught for a touchdown on the end zone. Can you believe it? BYU must now bounce back in the premier venue in college football against one of this season's national championship contenders, the number five, Notre Dame Fighting Irish. BYU football versus Notre Dame. Pre-game begins this Saturday at 1.30 p.m. Eastern Time with kickoff scheduled for 3.30. Here on the home of Cougar Sports, Sirius XM 143, BYU Radio. Good afternoon, I'm Sam McCall for Sirius XM 143, BYU Radio. A senior advisor to the Romney campaign dismissed an idea for government to put a cap on the size big banks should be allowed to grow to. The idea was introduced by a Federal Reserve official last week, but the Romney campaign says that the public sector, public sector markets will do a better job keeping big banks in check than arbitrary government limits on banks judged too big to fail. The issue could easily come up in tonight's second presidential debate. Economic recovery has been the main issue for both candidates so far, and it seems to be on the minds of many voters as well. Secretary of State Hillary Rodham Clinton took responsibility for the September 11th attack on on the Benghazi-Libya embassy yesterday. The blame for the attack has become a hot topic on the campaign trail as Republicans have been trying to point out inconsistencies between White House and State Department reports. Clinton says the president and vice president would not have been informed on the specifics of security decisions and that State Department, the State Department's policies ultimately rest on her shoulders. Initial reports claimed that the attack, which killed four Americans, was sparked by protests over an anti-Islam video posted online. But now officials understand that this was a coordinated attack planned for the 9-11 anniversary. A request by Ohio Republicans to shorten the early voting period has been blocked by the Supreme Court. The plan was to stop early voting on November 2nd, but the Obama campaign, the Democratic National Committee, and the Ohio Democratic Party all sued to allow early voting to continue all the way up through the eve of the official election day. The Dems are so keen on making sure early voting is allowed because it is thought that more people with low incomes who work odd hours tend to vote Democrat and will be more likely to have time to vote during the early period. Ohio is one of this election's key swing states that could be very important in deciding the outcome of the race. Officials in Cuba have announced an ease in the highly restrictive laws imposed on the country's citizens for 50 years. Previously, the only way to legally leave the country was by obtaining a hard-to-get travel visa. The strict laws have led many Cubans to attempt to leave the country on dangerous rafts or by inner tubes over rough seas, 
With the new policies, only a passport will be required as well as a visa from the country the person is traveling to. The popular change will go into effect January 13th of next year. You're listening to BYU Radio on Sirius XM 143. I'm Sam McCall. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, I just was loving the song Pumped Up Kicks right there, but um, they, they pulled it from me. It was right about to get to the big, ex- excellent, incredible moment. Um, we've been talking about depression, right? And uh, one of our producers, Bryce, from the Bryce is Right, uh, did a little bit about how psychologists figure out if it really is de- de- depression. He drops a little science and gives us a look behind the curtain of teenage depression. This time around, things are going to be a little more informative than my usual shtick. But uh, being a teenager is rough. One minute you were a kid whose only concern was when you'd get the next chance to go out and play. The next minute you're suddenly pulled in every direction. you got school with all these cliques, and you have got to be a part of one. And you cannot be a part of two, because that's a violation of the rules. And let's not forget that these are the years in which you make or break your future success, or so they make you think. Never mind the fact that your brain isn't done developing. This seems like the perfect perfect time to require a lot of planning and forethought. Totally not frustrating and counterintuitive in the least. And let's not forget, your formerly predictable body is now doing all this weird stuff as you transition into the awfulness of adulthood. Do you see the picture I'm painting? Then does it really come as any surprise when you hear some of the statistics about depression in teenagers? Now, kids are designed to be resilient, but nobody can take the pressure forever. Here's some numbers for you. About 20% of teens will experience teen depression before they reach adulthood. Between 10 and 15% of teenagers have some symptoms of teen depression at any one time. About 5% of teenagers are suffering from a major depression right now. As many as 8.3% of teens suffer from depression for at least a year at a time compared to about the 5.3% of the general population. Also, most teens with depression will suffer from more than one episode. 20-40% to will have more than one episode within two years and 70% will have more than one episode before adulthood. 15% of teens with depression eventually develop bipolar disorder and a small percent of teens also suffer from from seasonal depression, usually during the winter months, especially in higher altitudes. Now, it's not exactly a pandemic, but it's certainly more prevalent than we want it to be. But anyone who's got teenagers around them knows that they can be a little hard to read sometimes. These kids are moody enough as is, so when is it just a funk and when is it depression? I think the real question you're asking is, when do I take the risk of intervening? It can be awful for both parties to go through the fiasco just to find out the kid was not feeling fantastic that week. And as we're all too aware, teenagers don't need any more ammunition when it comes to hating someone. They can generate plenty on their own. So here's some things to look out for. Have you seen a distinct change in behavior after something traumatic? And let me point out this should be something that's traumatic to them, not something that you would think is traumatic. Do they have some sort of history of abuse? And I would include bullying in this category. Do they have a disability? Even if they've had it for a while and they're a real champ about it, this stuff can really wear on kids. Does their family have a history of depression? Do you know, and I mean know for sure, if there is any alcohol or drug abuse? Or is there a sudden change change in academic behavior. Now my next two points are the most important. Are they having trouble sleeping? 
as in are they trying to get the sleep they need and want and are they frustrated by their inability to do so. This should be your first big red flag that something might be up. Sleep problems indicate that something's a little off in the brain. And as a side note, sleep problems make every problem worse. So depression aside, sleep problems are always worth addressing. And the most important is what we call the four D's of disorder. Is their behavior deviant? And by this I mean deviant for them, not to you. If you're not sure about this, I think it's time to get more involved in your kid's life. And you have my condolences. Are they distressed by the funk that they're in? If they are, that means they've also noticed that something's up and they're concerned about it. Is there a dysfunction? Are they suddenly having trouble doing the more basic things that they need to do every day? And by trouble I mean, are they having issues caring to remember things? Do they have trouble working up the motivation to do pretty simple stuff? And the last D is danger. Are they putting themselves or anyone else in danger? If you can't meet all four of the Ds, a doctor worth his weight won't diagnose something as a disorder. And if you can't meet the four Ds and you're not having sleep trouble, it's probably just some mild anxiety or stress, which is definitely worth looking into as well. All right, that's it for now. And remember, don't forget to be awesome. Another well a job well done by Bryce Tobin. Uh, now, this it's interesting. This young adult thing, It's it, kids get depressed too. Absolutely. We're back with Melissa Lampson, by the way. LCSW. She likes to be called the queen of counseling. Don't know why. <laughs> it's just something she demanded we call her. <laughs> um, and she, you can find her at newleafcounselingutah.com. But she's trying to walk us through depression and all of its many, you know, sources. But kids can have it as well. Yes. And... What do we do? So first of all, how is it different manifesting in kids? And what are we supposed to do about this? Well, I just want to talk a little bit about, you know, teens and adolescents. There's a really big risk factor here because when you're a teenager, your brain isn't fully developed. We know this. Oh, for sure. And you have more impulsive tendencies and a really strong, I mean, it's difficult to be able to see past tomorrow. So the long term, you know, what will this do? How will it affect people that I love? Um, You know, what kind of choices am I making if I, you know, do something stupid today? How is it going to affect me 10 years from now? We may not see the repercussions. Yeah. So teens, literally their brain isn't developed enough to really see the long term outcomes of their choices. So when you have a young adult or teen that's depressed and I mean, it's it's pretty severe. Um, you have a much higher rate for suicide. Um, That's, you know, that's the more alarming part of this disease is that when, you know, the statistic for teens is that from people ages 15 to 24, it was the third leading cause of death. Yeah, they're serious. Yeah, it's a big deal. But it's only below homicide and car accidents. Uh. So... One and two, you know, one is yeah. car accidents, two is homicides. Yeah. And so Less all of Less controllable in a way, yeah, some of those. All of those have the impulsive yeah. aspect and, yeah. you know, and car accidents, a lot of teens are driving, driving crazy. Yes. Maybe under the influence. So, um, so, you know, important to remember that if you're seeing this in teens and in young adults, it's really important to intervene because, you know, they're just a high risk. Mm. So, um, so what do we, how do you intervene? What, with kids or in, with your partner, if somebody is depressed, what are we supposed to do? Okay, so we talked a little bit about the signs earlier. I know mm-hmm. that Rob can, you know, talked a little bit more about it. Make sure that you're not, um, I guess, overwhelming them, saying, "Hey, you seem depressed. Let's get you some help." Yeah, you're a mess. Pull your head out. Stuff like that's depressing. <laughs> Listening is extremely important. Yeah. Let them talk. Get them talking if you can. Let them share. 
right? And just just trying to be approachable. I mean, making sure that they're not alone all the time. I know that can be hard with a teenager. Right. But sometimes if they're, they go into their room and they're listening to really depressing music and you're concerned as a parent or they're totally isolated from friends or, yeah. you know, like we talked about, yeah. things appear fine, but you just kind of have a gut feeling that something might be wrong. What if their grades, I guess grades could be failing. Yeah, they're grades not, are failing. They're kind of, they're, they're not able to really do anything. They just go to, into a dark room or. Yeah. So you need to make sure that, that you can listen and you can approach them in a way that says, you know, I. I, you seem to be down. I'm concerned about you. I care about you. How can I help? Do you feel like you can talk to me if you need to? You don't know what kind of response you're going to get, yeah. but you do. You need to keep a close eye on it. And sometimes as a parent, if you're really concerned, you do need to, you need to get them into a therapist or a doctor to help identify what the problem yeah. is. or play hardball. And sometimes you just need to intervene. And be the parent, right? Yeah. And do it, even if they don't really want the help. Right. Um, yeah, we don't let them lead this. So a depressed no. teen should not be leading this decision. Right. Well, just because, like I said, just because of what can happen if it gets yeah. more and more right. severe. What happens if, it, if it, it's a depressed partner that seems or acts like a teenager? Like <laughs> your wife or your husband, they just won't go get the help that she or he or she needs. How do we, I guess we do the same thing. At some point, we maybe play a little harder ball. Like this yeah. is. The word that comes to mind is. Is you know tough love? Yeah, you got to be incredibly compassionate and loving. But if if their behavior or their mood seems to be so low, I think you know it's okay to be able to say things like, "Look, you need to go make an appointment," or "This, yeah, I'm not going to be able to counsel you through this. This is too beyond me." Yeah, and you know, being able to set boundaries, right? That's what I see a lot with these couples I work with is one of them's depressed. They know they're depressed. Their mother was depressed. Grandma was depressed. And won't do anything. Nobody will do anything about it. And finally, it's like, well, then I'm going to leave you because I'm not going to sit here and watch you deteriorate. Right. So me or you, take your pick. Now, yeah, which seems, which uh, seems so seems harsh. Like, but you know what? Honestly, it's very powerful because th- that's the moment of change. Then all of a sudden I see people move yeah. and, and then I send them to you. yeah so it's it's extremely important to love somebody enough to say i'm concerned really you need some help and you know you just talked about setting that boundary of i love you too much to stick around and watch you deteriorate when they come in i guess there's the different types there's the chemical type where they might need some chemist they might need some chemistry they might need some meds there's also just kind of the situational type as a therapist how do you what do you go about doing so, so those out there that are wondering, do I really want to go deal with this? How would you go about approaching what, how you handle this? Well, first off, I like to talk about how all of us will experience some level of depression during our lifetime. It's normal. Yeah, or have a depressing day. So there's no shame in you know, coming and trying to get some help for it. Right. Um, so the difference is, is you, 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 know, you kind of evaluate how long has this been going on? Is there a history of this? What has been currently happening in your life? Is it grief? Yeah. Because there's a difference between depression and grief. Grief often causes symptoms of depression, but people have to go through a process of grief to heal. Right. And medication isn't really going to do no. much for that. So if you're just out there medicating or like, you know, make your situation worse so they'll give you some meds. That's not going to help you here. No, not at all. We instead need to learn to get some counseling where we deal with the grief. Yeah. So, and by grief, I mean, that can be any kind of loss. Mm -hmm. It can be a loss of a marriage, you know, a A loss of independence, a job. Mm -hmm. 
And that's important to get to the bottom to because bottom of because you have to go through the process. You're not going to get a quick fix on depression. Yeah. yeah. So, well, it's interesting. Uh, uh, thinking you would, you may as well then just go to alcohol. Yeah. You may as well just go to drugs because that's the I mean, that's the kind of mentality of the quick fix. This is something you need to get through. We yeah. need to talk through. We need to deal with. And and it doesn't have to be horrible either. I mean, I think they it's cathartic. It's relaxing. It's relieving to go mm-hmm. sit to talk to somebody that knows what they're doing. Right. And not feel mm-hmm. isolated and alone, yeah. you know, to be able to kind of share true thoughts and feelings and not have to hide it or act like everything's OK. What are what are some other ways that we can kind of get a little bit of a boost, a chemical boost? What are some other things that, that might be impacting or might be solutions? OK, so there's several of these and that's one thing that I want to point out there is there are options. Yeah. You know, no matter how down you're feeling or you feel like your teen or young adult is feeling, there are options. And that's important to remember. There's so many options. Um, and, you know, as far as physical sources of depression, it's important when you're evaluating. I, I always suggest getting a blood panel because yeah. – having a hyperactive thyroid or a hypoactive thyroid can cause depression. Right. And so if you're taking an antidepressant and that's the problem, it's not going to go away. You need to deal with the real problem. Right. Also, nutrition deficiencies like vitamin D. Oh. Um, there's light therapy. Yeah. Um, we, we're coming up on the winter season. And so a lot of people find that their mood decreases when the sun goes away. Right. It's not out as, surfers. as frequently. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, you know, it's true. Like in Hawaii, they have a really low depress- depression rate, um, tons of sunshine. It's because they have the phrase of... hang loose. If you <laughs> it's have a relaxed hang loose, culture. it's a very relaxed culture. <laughs> yeah. So um, exercise. Yeah. Um, dopamine is one of the main chemicals that's low when you're in a depressed state. And sunshine and exercise helps to mm-hmm. increase that. Sex. Sex does. Yeah. That's on my list as well. It's a dopamine release, right? It is. Yep. Which is a connection with another individual. Right. So um, it also, sometimes it can be hypoglycemia that's Mm -hmm. causing symptoms of depression, chronic pain. Yeah. That's a big one. So unless you're treating the the pain, it's not, you know, going to really go away. Um, And, you know, another thing I wanted to talk about is, let's see. It's scary. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, here it is. There it is, right in front of you. (laughs) You were trying to freak us out. (laughs) Oh my heavens! Sorry about that. False alarm. (laughs) No, like fibromyalgia. That's that's the chronic pain. You're getting diagnosed. I mean, there's a lot of things like that. Post-traumatic stress disorder. A lot of these. We we have one more minute, Melissa. If you okay, so what do we want them to know? What's the one or two things? That if somebody's out there feeling alone, feeling disconnected, feeling like they don't matter, what do they do? You know, main thing is seek support. Somebody that you trust and and see if you can reach out. And even if you don't feel like it, reach out and talk to somebody about it. There's four things that change your mood quickly. Substances, food, exercise, and a connection with another individual. Hmm. Um, You know, substances aren't really a healthy way to deal with it. But the connection and... You know, the others um, can be food. Like I said, that can be a way of medicating as well. And it increases the dopamine. Yeah, Snickers. But it's not going to have a lasting effect on treating depression. Well, And then all of a sudden you're getting weight and you're like, I'm a loser. And it just reinforces depression. Yeah. So 
obviously the support and and you know going back to the u.s we have a more isolated culture we really foster independence Mm -hmm. whereas there are many other countries who live in big family units yeah so you've always got someone around they have a lot of support that's true and we tend to move away and kind of do things on our own and feel isolated lean on the people around you and if you're out there and you see somebody depressed do what you can to get in the bubble get in with them right connect right Melissa Lamson, LCSW, the queen, the queen of counseling. Uh, great guests. If you want more information from Melissa, you can go to her website, newleafcounselingutah.com. We'll be back with, uh, we're going to have Melissa psychoanalyze some of the songs out there that might be depressing you right here on the Matt Townsend Show on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Connect with Matt on BYU Radio's Facebook page and Twitter at BYU Radio. What does a children's hospital have in common with NASA space probes and your kitchen junk drawer? This is Innovation Now, bringing you stories behind the ideas that shape our future. Ever look for something in your kitchen's junk drawer? When it's your own kitchen, you kind of know where everything is and what it's for. Now, imagine you're in charge of hundreds of other kitchen drawers spread out all over the country, and you have to find a specific item you've never seen. That was the problem NASA faced with its many databases, archives full of observations and measurements from hundreds of space probes, satellites, and lab experiments, and more data coming in every day. It all needed a framework, a system, to not only manage the data, but to find hidden connections or relationships within that data and present it in easy-to-understand forms. That's what object-oriented data technology is, a flexible framework for organizing and making sense of huge, widespread data sets. NASA made OODT software open source for anyone to use, and it's already working for children's hospitals in the National Cancer Institute to improve their research and perfect new treatments. Since anybody can use OODT, It has global implications for turning raw data into new understanding. Innovation Now is produced by the National Institute of Aerospace through collaboration with NASA. Visit us online at innovationnow.us. We all know that managing our work and personal lives can be a difficult balancing act, as well as keeping track of our health and general well-being. Well, that's why Matt Townsend, life coach and counselor, is here to help. Join Matt for guidance and advice on how to maintain happy and healthy relationships by tuning into The Matt Townsend Show weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. This is Good Life by One Republic. Oh, now you know what's cool is, uh, depression aside, is music can do a body good. Don't you think, Melissa? Yes. That was one of the things that I wanted to talk about as far as therapeutic. I mean, really, I can put on some music by Imagine Dragons, which we won't name names, but I just did, and it can really pump me up. Or we can put on other music that will just mess us up. 
Yeah. So what we're going to have you do, Rob's put together some songs that have probably very little therapeutic value. And we're going to have you just assess the singers, not the singers per se, but the whole mood. Well, uh, and to see, is this somebody who's just whiny or do they really have a problem? Okay. And I don't want the world to see me Because I don't think they'd understand Sounds depressing. Yeah, it does. Now, if I, personally, the song makes me happy. But when you listen to the words, that guy's just sad. Yeah, extremely sad. You're right. It's got a great beat. Yeah. It has kind of this uplifting sound to it, but the words, they're depressing. They're depressing. And if that's like one I can't, of your favorite I can't show songs, myself to the world. Yeah. Nobody will see me the right way. Uh, Everything's going to be broken. And imagine you're just alone, already depressed, and you're listening to this song. Ugh, that's heavy. So, so music, when you're in, when you're feeling depressed and you hear something that resonates with how you feel, it can be validating, but staying there for a long time oh, yeah. make you then feel worse. Then you're stuck. <laughs> and you're stuck in your music or your car listening to it. Give us another one, Robbie. Morning will come and I'll do what's right. Just give me till then to give up. Wow. Okay, that one just takes forever. <laughs> I think I would be depressed just having to, because this is just so long. You would be depressed listening to this? This has hope. The words are hopeful. It's hopeful. I love this. The so hope, to but me, it's so she's, oh, it is, it's a slow song, but it's moving. Yeah. And she's giving up some control. Uh-huh. Saying, Look at you. You know, saying, I can't make you love me. See, so, you know, yeah. to me, that would be kind of a relief. It's, she's and she's like pulling herself. herself out of that state that she's been in. So this would be healthy song. Yeah, I think so. Okay, this is good. The, I, you're reading into a lot of this that I've never even thought of. That's You're profound. I think you pay attention to the sound. I just like the beat. The beat. I, if it makes my knee j- jump up and down, then I'm happy about it. Go for it. What's the next one, Robbie? I never thought I'd die alone another six months. That's a scary one. That's one that's got a nice beat again. But boy. Wow. That what kid's do you not think? right. He needs help. <laughs> don't you think? Yeah. It, it almost sounds like he has a plan. Yeah. I think right? he's, it sounds like he's implementing plan his plan. to hurt himself. Yeah. Exactly. That's a song, too, that you see some teenager bobbing out oh, yeah. to driving home from school. And then you stop and think twice about it. You go, wait, he just said what? Right. This yeah. is why Give you all need my stuff. I'm gonna be more gone. songs from Disney. Yeah. You know what I mean? Disney, you just don't, you can't go wrong. I mean, some of the fairy tales were a little weird, but, um, you know, we're killing people and giving them poison and stuff, but at least we're not talking about it. Yeah. Although I will say about Disney, you've got this ideal, right? And so if you're comparing to the ideal marriage, isn't like that. Yeah. Plus, by the way, Disney is way down on stepmothers. I don't it's think true. it's Disney. It's just all of those very dysfunctional fairy tales. families. They're Have you been very anti mother. Totally. <laughs> I mean, where did all the mothers go for crying out loud? Moms, you need to be. Or they're extremely dysfunctional. <laughs> totally dysfunctional. Okay. Or or they're not even real. And they're just animals that are just like mice that are singing. Yeah. Rob, give us another one. How about a really whiny one here? Oh, good. 
Okay, that's interesting. That's, that's a him. breakup song. That's a breakup song, but he, but actually, he's the one that was broken up with, right? He's the he's the loser in the breakup, right? He could, and, he could hardly believe it when he heard the news today, and he had to go get it straight from her. Yeah, no, interesting. <laughs> who, who sings so that sad. song? So sad. Uh, Michael Bolton. Yeah. Okay. He's doing okay. Yeah. Even though he broke up, he's okay now. Yeah. So that's like a good idea of this situational depression, and he, you you get the sense that yeah. he is going to be okay. He's going to be fine. He'll go do another album. <laughs> he'll be he'll be totally fine. Music matters, though, doesn't it? It absolutely does. And one of the things um, that happens a lot of times when people go into say drug rehab is. They have a lot of using songs, songs that they listened to oh, while they were doing drugs. To, yeah. yeah. Which obviously, we didn't talk much about this, but substance abuse mm-hmm. can definitely lead to feelings of depression. Oh, absolutely. And so, your food. And there was another thing about creatine. Tell me about that real fast. We got oh, 30 seconds. Yeah. So one of the things I wanted to mention as far as a new study that came out, University of Utah um gave creatine as part of a trial to help lift mood in young adults. Yeah. And it had positive results. So creatine is this bodybuilding powder that they're all using to get in good shape. Is that what that is? Yeah. So it's still kind of in the works, but yeah. it has a lot of promising oh, results. And they're they're doing a study right now to have teens and young yeah. adults, you know, participate See, in. So your your basic point as we wrap this up, we gotta get back to people, we gotta get back to relationships. Grab a little creatine. For me, it's Cheetos. And uh, but let's take care of each other out there. We, you know, we need each other to make it through this crazy thing we call life. And again, we'd love to have you on the show, listening to us every Monday through Friday at uh, five o'clock Eastern Time, right here on the Matt Townsend Show. We'll talk to you tomorrow on Sirius XM One Forty Three BYU Radio.